This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number 19. Today's special guest, Ryan Hunt. This episode of the Game Dev Field Guide is sponsored by our community patrons. Everyone gets this episode for free, and it's all thanks to the generosity of those patrons. So firstly, I want to say a big thank you to them. Their support directly benefits this show, the entire Game Dev Field Guide community, as well as some new content that I'm working on. So if you'd like to become a patron and support the show, as well as vote on some episode topics and get a special Discord role, I'll leave a link to that in the show description. With the intro out of the way, let's move on over to the first segment of the show. The first segment of bonus episodes is the Game Buff Debuff, where you guys submit your one word or one idea topics, and I don't do any research, I just kind of go off the top and say whether or not I think they're buffed or good or improving or debuffed, meaning bad or trending in a negative direction. And usually I have to leave a reminder in the Discord that, uh, hey guys, I need some buff debuff topics, but actually I've kind of fallen behind. There's just been so many lately. So today I'm going to do as many as I can to sort of catch up to at least September, uh, the one starting with September. And uh, yeah, I guess that means I'll just have to go quicker uh, with each topic today. So I'm going to try and keep myself to like a one sentence or two sentences, <laughs> but you guys know how I like to talk, so we'll see how this goes. Our first topic is word games. I think word games are a buffed genre. This would be things like Wordle. I think it's a buffed genre because it reaches a demographic and audience that a lot of other games don't usually get through to. This audience would be like, I don't know what to call it, the middle-aged soccer mom audience, maybe. And, of course, that might be changing now, uh, just based on, you know, there's a lot of millennials who are now middle-aged, or becoming middle-aged, and I would say uh, the demographic's a little bit different for that. But for your parents, we'll say, because I can see the age level of people who listen to the show. So I would say for most people who listen, these kinds of word games reach your parents' audience. And for that, they're buffed. The next topic is useless games like the beer app or lighter app on the original iPhone, or I guess it would be the iPod, right? The touch one. I think this brings up a really interesting discussion. Um, what is a game, actually? Because to me, this beer app or the lighter which if you weren't around at the beginning of like the <laughs> touch iPod or the touch iPhone, um, we didn't always have touch screens, believe it or not. And the very first things that people use the touch screens for and the uh, accelerometer and all that was to make an app that looks like you are drinking a beer. Like <laughs> the foam with the beer always points up no matter which way you tip your phone. So it looks like a beer mug and you can tip it and the foam yeah, moves. And that blew our mind. But anyways, this brings up the discussion, um, what is a game? Because to me, I don't actually think these are games. I think these are toys. And I don't mean that as like a, a negative, um, like a hierarchy, like games are automatically better than toys. But I think games and toys are different things. And these are toys. 
So to me, useless games, I guess, would be slightly debuffed, although they are cool. But I personally do not see them as games. I don't know. I, I wish we had more time to talk about each thing because I really want to do a discussion about what is a game and what is a toy and like the things that separate it. Reach out to me on Twitter at underscore Zachavilli underscore or the community discord and let's have a discussion about that. Anyways, next topic. Stolen art mobile purchase games or that's what I paraphrased it as is in my notes but I know uh, kind of what this means. These are those games where they're really microtransaction uh, heavy focused. They're usually like gotcha games. And the thing behind these is they are basically scams because the art that they're selling you, which is what you're paying for, really. I mean, if you're paying for a character, like 50% of it is you just want the cool art. Um, that art is stolen. The example that this poster gives is one where they've stolen anime art from different animes. I've seen it personally for games like Pokemon, where it's not a Nintendo game, but they take the Pokemon art and put it into a game, and then you can buy Charizard for five bucks. And they know they are going to get taken down. Um, they know they're probably going to get sued, but they're just trying to get the money up front. These are scams from the very start, and yeah, they are debuffed. As debuffed, I think, as something can be. The next topic is the 4X genre on console. I have played a 4X game on console before. It was actually one of the Civilization games. I don't remember which one it was, but it's on Xbox 360, I think. I think there's a very, very important thing you have to do if it's a 4X on console, and it's ha you have to design it from the start knowing that it's going to be on console. I do not think it ports very well, at least a direct port. I guess you could take the ideas for a game and work really, really hard on the port uh, to make it controller friendly and kind of you would have to change the whole user experience because it's just not as easy getting around a 4x map with a controller as opposed to a mouse and i think a big mistake you could make is just porting it and putting in minimal effort into redoing the ux because you do basically have to redo the ux and ui so yeah i think 4x on console um, can go either ways. It, it would be buffed because you're bringing a genre to a platform that, you know, doesn't usually mix and you might introduce a whole new group of people to the 4X genre uh, because there are a lot of people out there who only play console games. But it also can be extremely debuffed, um, especially if you do not pay much attention to the user experience in UI and you do not adapt it, you kind of just leave it how it was and you just port the game over. If you don't adapt that, uh, it's just not going to work that well. And in that case, it would be debuffed. Next, we kind of have a two-for-one. Um, YouTubers and streamers for advertisement, paying them, that is, and people who contact you offering to promote your game. And a lot of times, this is two in the same. When I released Bounce Shot, I got like 10 emails a day from streamers asking if they could promote my game. And I never answered a single one of them. Now, why didn't I ask them? Um, because a lot of times the streamers that are reaching out to you, the problem is uh, they're not really streamers. These are um, code key scams, right? What they're doing is asking for a free key to your game or free keys, maybe one to give out during their stream, they'll say. And yeah, in exchange for that, they'll promote the, your game on their stream. The problem is, is a lot of their viewers and community is bots. And 
to tell you the truth, a lot of the streamers I suspect are bots and it's like one person running, um, I don't know, dozens of accounts and they're just building the stockpile of free game keys. They then go and sell these free game keys on those sort of gray area key marketplaces for video games where they can sell you like brand new video games for 75% off. That's how those storefronts get those keys. And so, yeah, I, I never answer the um, dozens of emails I get a day still for people who say they're going to play Bounce Shot on stream. And probably one or two of those emails uh, somewhere in there have probably been earnest, you know, streamers who are actually trying to have a mutually beneficial relationship. And I think for that, uh, that would be a case where I would pick someone out as the game developer. I would go to a streamer that I like and pay them or work out some kind of mutual beneficial relationship to advertise my game. So yeah, I think it's debuffed when they reach out to you, but it's buffed when you reach out to them. Does that make sense? Okay, I spent way too long on that one, so I'm going to go like <laughs> really quick on the next few, and then maybe we'll read or talk about some more. Easter eggs, uh, I think Easter eggs are buffed. It's a really fun thing to do when you kind of have run out of energy to work on your game. It's a fun to make a little thing that somebody's going to find. Unity Iron Source Merger, I was kind of neutral to it, but I did a whole entire episode on it. So yeah, if you want a really in-depth look at it, go check out uh, episode 60. Changing the difficulty of a game that makes your player weaker. I think this is buffed. This is a really fun way for me personally to play games. I'm actually thinking about doing a YouTube series where I play games with like weirdly harsh or narrow challenges. For those of you who watch me stream, you'll remember when I did the baby Pokemon challenge where I beat Pokemon Shining Pearl using nothing but baby Pokemon. Which, if you didn't know, there's only like 18 baby Pokemon out of the thousand <laughs> or however many Pokemon total there are. So yeah, that was a really fun challenge. I was thinking about doing a YouTube series where I do games like that. I don't know. Let me know if that's something you'd be interested in. But yeah, as a player, I think that's um, buffed. Internet required for single player games. I think this is debuffed. The biggest reason I think we kind of saw this in, when was that? Probably the early 2010s when a lot of these games had those always online models, even for single-player games. I think the problem they were trying to fix is piracy, and oftentimes I think you lose money trying to fight piracy. I think you just accept that piracy is going to happen, and uh, you don't like totally hamper your game by making it always online for a single-player game. That's just a net negative uh, that actually ruined some games that would have been fine, looking at SimCity <laughs> specifically. So yeah, I think that's... Uh, debuffed. Mod support. I think mod support is buffed. I think we've talked about this topic actually before. I think mod support is buffed, but you have to be careful uh, what people are using your platform, your game as a platform and your IP. You have to be careful what they're using it for. Like if we just talk about maybe a graphics update mod, uh, totally cool if they want to, you know, update your art or change your art a little bit. I think that shows someone has a lot of passion for your game. But what if they like put swastikas on your art for instance then you would want to regulate that somehow so yeah mod support in general is buffed uh, with a, a couple caveats pass and play local co-op it's been a really long time actually since i've done a pass and play local co-op uh, experience with friends 
I think it's slightly buffed. It's kind of niche, right? Because it's, let's just face it, it's a little bit inconvenient. Not in the sense like, you know, you're looking for like optimal playing when you're playing with a group of friends. I just know like for my friend groups, it's hard to get a lot of people in a group for a long period of time. And if I want to play games with my friends, it's almost always easier just to do it over the internet. But yeah, with that, I still think pass and play local co-op is really fun for parties or, you know, just get-togethers. It's more about the frequency of the get-togethers, which is why it only gets a slight buff. Mechanics that mess with the save file, I'm going to say those are buffed because I think there's a lot to explore there. I've always wanted to make a game where somehow you could make it so that if you died... Uh, you could like never play the game again. Like you had one life in the game. I don't know if it would work <laughs> well from a game design standpoint, but I think that would be like a really interesting art piece. And to make it so that you could never save again or your save file was broken forever. I don't know. There's got to be some fun things to explore there. So for that, it's buffed. RPGs where you can change your class mid-game. We did a whole episode on RPG class design. In fact, I might have talked about it twice, but I know I talked about it in episode four, RPG class design. I think I'm, the other one I might have talked to about it in is progression, maybe. I don't remember what episode that is. But either way, my stance has been that although it's nice to have some flexibility to change the class and playstyles and stuff like that, I actually think that um, we've gone too far in the flexibility direction where there's not really points to classes anymore. If you can do everything, then why would you pick a class? Why even have classes? Why not just have a master list of skills? Part of the coolness of having a class in an RPG is defining your character as something. I remember in Diablo 2, me specifically, I played a summon druid, which, by the way, was not a very good class. The, like, nature spells druid was way better. But it was fun to join a party with another druid And I don't know, just have, it felt like two totally different builds. I felt like my decision of how I built my character really mattered. And we had different strengths than weaknesses. With the modern way of doing classes where there's lots of flexibility, um, you would just change your class to the best druid. And because of the internet, everyone knows what the best builds are on day one. So yeah, I think changing your class mid-game in an RPG is slightly debuffed actually. And I hope to see games maybe go back in the other direction towards uh, meaningful decisions when picking a class. The next topic is quests in a procedural world. This to me is slightly buffed, I guess. Just did a whole episode on quests. And the reason I think it's slightly buffed is it does allow you to make a lot of content. As an indie dev, right, you could probably procedurally generate quests. And those would lean more towards the game style quests. I'm now going back and referencing what we talked about in the quest episode. But yeah, those game style quests where it's more of like a to-do list. I think that could be interesting, but I do think you could really overdo it and just have an endless to-do list that would actually really burn the player out. As far as story style quests, um, I think you could do procedural story quests This would look like something maybe in Dwarf Fortress. I wonder, I think there are procedural quests in Dwarf Fortress. Like, maybe they're not called quests, but I'm pretty sure you could go on like an adventure and a lot of the elements of it are procedurally generated. And therefore, it is a quest in maybe the classic sense of the word. 
So yeah, it can work, uh, but I wouldn't overdo it. The next topic is odd genre mixing. Specifically, this person mentioned horror portrayed in different styles, like a horror RPG. Uh, they mentioned horror fire emblem. I think uh, I, I would say this is buffed. I, I actually have never fully made a horror game. I guess I've made like horror prototypes, but maybe I should attempt a horror game jam because it's been a really long time since I've made a horror anything and I want to complete a horror game. So I'm going to personally give this some thought. What genre could I mix with horror that would be interesting and something I could pull off in the time of a game jam? I don't know. I'm going to think about it, but yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, I'm going to give it slightly buffed. Kind of piggyback off that, the next topic is combat in horror games. I think if it's a true horror game, like a survival horror game, combat should be somewhat limited because part of the tone of the game is kind of like the negative power fantasy, right? It's like you actually are powerless to stop the monster until you aren't, until you figured it out, until you overcame the odds, I guess. If you think about horror games or movies or stories, it's always the first like 75% of the story is being scared of the monster until or the killer or whatever until you come across the way to defeat it. And then the tables kind of turn. So yeah, if you're going to do combat in a horror game, you just have to keep that in mind. At the beginning, combat should basically be not that useful or not used at all. And maybe in the end, it doesn't even have to be combat that ends the monster. In fact, I think it's a really interesting idea how to resolve the conflict without combat. But let's face it, it's a video game. Uh, combat's probably going to be in there somewhere. So yeah, I would say combat in horror games is slightly debuffed just because there's a lot of pitfalls that you could fall into. Uh, and you have to make sure you do it the right way. Next, we have visual scripting. I think visual scripting is buffed. It fits a whole class of people who maybe don't do so well with the typing and the syntax and get caught up on all that and they can just make like a diagram to code their games. Next topic is Skyrim's restoration loop which I believe is referring to I don't know if it's a glitch or if it's intended but in Skyrim I think there are some crafting recipes that you can kind of do in a loop like you can say uh, I'm gonna make a potion that gives me plus to crafting and then once you have that plus to crafting, then you make a potion with that now that you're buffed up. And then you make another one that's plus to crafting. And you just do that in an infinite loop until you can craft, you know, a health potion that gives you 10 million health. I think this is slightly buffed. I think for whatever reason, the games in the Elder Scrolls series, people accept that glitches and like weird situations like this are just part of the game. Like, it's fun to break Skyrim. It's fun to come up with this crazy strategy. I remember in Morrowind, for instance, uh, using levitate spells that allowed you to fly across the map on one jump. Like, you would press the jump button and you would be in the air for <laughs> minutes because it had to load each chunk because you were going all the way across the map. And at the time, you know, this was on the original Xbox, so it had to load literally every little chunk while you're just flying through the air. Yeah, I don't know why weird bugs and glitches and nonsensical loops like this are just part of the Elder Scrolls series, and for that, it's slightly buffed. And the last topic today is inventory Tetris. 
This is the idea where you kind of have a grid that represents your inventory. And in order to carry items, you have to place them in there and they come in different shapes and sizes and you have to play Tetris basically to fit it into your inventory. I think inventory Tetris is one of the most innovative pieces of game design in games history. And I know that's a really strong statement. And for that, I'm going to say it's super buffed. But I think it's super, super interesting because it gamified something in a video game that we take for granted uh, in real life. And it kind of makes the real the boringness of real life into a game. And it's one of the only examples of this. Like if you think about maybe a driving game and there's a gas can on the ground and like when you run out of gas, all you have to do is hit the gas can and it refills your meter. That's a gamified version of real life, right? Like real life, you know you need gas for your car. You have to go to the gas station. You have to go to the pump. You have to put in your information, your credit card, all that then you can pump your gas. And nobody wants that boringness of real life, all those little steps you have to do, uh, in their video games. So it totally makes sense. Just drive over the gas symbol and your car will fill up. But inventory Tetris takes something like filling your backpack, which, yeah, in real life, like you, the way you put stuff in your backpack actually matters. And there's like a whole organizational thing to it. And that seems like that would be a boring part of real life that you wouldn't have in a video game. But in games where you actually have to kind of fit stuff and organize it into your bag, uh, I don't know, I think it's just a really interesting way of gamifying a real-life boring thing, and it's actually more fun in the video game. Like, I'm actually happy they included a real-life boring thing in the video game. So yeah, that was a really <laughs> long-winded way to say I think Inventory Tetris is super buffed. And that's going to do it for Buffed Debuff today. That was a super long Buff Debuff topic segment rather but uh yeah that should help me catch up if you do have an idea for buff debuff and you want to hear it read on the show you can just go on over to the community discord there's a link to that in the show description and find the buff debuff channel and post whatever you'd like to hear about so with the first segment of the show done let's move on over to the second segment of the show the second segment of our show is always a key thought from a special guest and today's special guest is ryan hunt otherwise known as Develop Our Hunt. Ryan is a solo indie game developer working on a game called Mod Masks, which is an action VR game. So yeah, without further ado, everyone, please welcome Ryan Hunt. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Hunt, or also known as Develop Our Hunt on Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, eBay, you name it. First off, I just want to say thank you to Zach for giving me this opportunity here to get deeper and more involved in the game dev community. Assuming most of you listeners here are game devs themselves, or aspiring to be game devs someday, then I'm sure you all know how much work there is to do outside of the development of your game that needs to be done if you want to get the word out so others know it exists to even be able to play it. So again, thank you for this opportunity. What I want to focus on in my talk today is more on the code side of things. I'm hoping that whether you are brand new to coding or consider yourself an experienced programmer, then you'll still be able to take something away from this talk and have the mindset to grow and become a better programmer than you were yesterday. A little bit about myself before we get into that. I have been writing code for over 10 years now. The first four and a half years was in university where I received a bachelor's of computer science and engineering. Then I immediately got a job after university and worked on a Windows application that was written in Object Pascal, 
using the Delphi IDE. So shout out to any of you if you actually know what that is. It's some old stuff compared to today's standards. And then later we converted that project over to a web-based MVC environment where I was a full stack developer working on both the front end, back end, and even deep within the framework itself. I actually ended up leading that project for about a year or so after our CTO left. And I've also mentored new employees and conducted many programming interviews. I love to code, I really do. But once I reached a level in my software engineering career where I actually felt confident in my abilities, I started to feel somewhat empty and remembered why I wanted to learn how to code in the first place. We all know what happened during the year 2020. After a year of rediscovering my love for video games, I started to get the motivation to finally start working on a game of my own. Because I'm so big into bleeding edge technology, I decided I wanted to pursue the development of a VR game. I started working on my game Mod Mask at the beginning of 2022, after spending a year of learning Unity and working on some small mobile projects which I have still not actually released yet. Even though I have not yet released those mobile games, which I do still hope to do someday just for personal nostalgia, I regret not creating a devlog series for them to look back at the journey of building the project so I could look back on it someday. For my VR game Mod Mask, this is something I wanted to have as part of the development experience. You can check out seven episodes of the devlog on my YouTube channel to learn all about it. I even gave members of my Discord community a small tech demo to try out, which I'm currently addressing bug fixes and new features for. All are welcome to join my Discord community to get involved with that, or if you just love gaming and game dev in general. It is a small but welcoming community and is a place for all who love games. You can find Discord invites in the description of my YouTube videos. From all this experience working in professional team environments as well as working as a solo indie developer for almost two years, I want to share my thoughts and perspectives about programming in general to help game devs become better programmers and thus creating more great games. When it comes to making games, I feel like art and code are two of the biggest areas where people are strong in one area, but not the other. I personally find myself strong on the code side, but not so much on the art side. I know if I want to become a better artist, I will need to make a huge time investment learning and practicing art. This is something I want to do later down the road in my game dev career. Of course, there are also those who are strong in art and not so much on the coding side of things. And I want you to know that you do not need 10 years of programming experience to write code for a great game. But especially if you are just learning how to code, I want to provide you with some tips on how to maximize your results with a good balance of time input. First tip, don't worry about programming languages. I see this all too much on Twitter or even in university. People treat programming languages like they are NFL teams or something. C-sharp sucks, learn JavaScript. This mentality is ridiculous in my opinion. When conducting programming interviews, I would cringe when I looked at a resume that listed knowledge of 15 different languages. You may have heard this before, but if you can learn one programming language, you can learn them all. And this is absolutely true. What you should do is pick a project you want to work on, choose a language that will most efficiently help you bring that project into existence, and develop a deep understanding of how the project works. If you want to build a 2D mobile game, then Unity is a good engine to use, which uses C Sharp. If you want to make a hyper-realistic shooter, then Unreal Engine may be the way to go, which utilizes C++. If you were to build a web page for an e-commerce store, then you would almost certainly need some JavaScript, but you would not build that project in a game engine. Too many times I see new programmers getting caught up in languages and memorizing languages. It's easy to Google how to learn XYZ language and then find tutorials for how to write hello world in that language and then begin to go down the list of syntaxes the language has to offer. 
how to declare variables, arrays, if else statements, loops, etc. Some people get stuck in the stage of learning how to become a programmer. They learn all about C sharp, and then they decide they want to learn another language and decide to repeat the process for Python, and then the next language, and then the next. If all you do is learn how to memorize syntax, then you are not actually learning how to code. It is important to remember all these programming concepts exist, but they pretty much exist in every language, but with a slightly different syntax. I have not touched C++ in almost 10 years, but if I want to start working on a game in Unreal Engine, it wouldn't be the C++ I would have a hard time learning, it would be the engine's framework itself. At the framework level, I feel that there becomes this cutoff between art and technical programming. If you are working on developing the actual framework itself, then coding becomes way more technical, but the closer you are to the front end, coding becomes way more artistic. I watched a lot of game dev YouTube over the past couple of years. These tutorial videos have definitely been a huge help for me when it comes to making progress on my Unity VR game. However, I see a lot of other game devs, especially new ones, can get caught up in tutorial hell, which is not all that different than getting stuck learning a bunch of different programming languages. Game engines are supposed to be multi-purpose, all-in-one workspaces, but your game is almost certainly not going to utilize every single feature the engine has to offer. Focus on your game first. The engine, the code, all of that are tools to bring your game into existence. If you are an indie game dev and are working on a project in Unity or Unreal Engine, then you most likely are not going into the engine's framework code and modifying it. If you are, then awesome. But make sure you are writing optimized code at that level as it could have huge effects all over the system. But if you are just writing code and scripts attached to objects, working inside the bounds of the start block, update block, etc., then at this level treat the code more like art. What do I mean by this? For me, when I'm developing my game, or really this can apply to any software development in general, I like to think of my monitor as my canvas and the code as my color palette. The code is meant to bring the scene to life and functionality to the gameplay. While I do always want to write good, clean code, I try to remind myself that there are a million different ways to write a function, and since I'm working on the project solo, I need to write what works best for me. Of course, performance is very important, so you cannot write bad code per se. But try not to get too caught up in how to code something the most optimal way the first time you do it. Let the art flow out of you and write code to achieve an end goal. If it proves to be a problem down the line, then make sure it's written in a way that for when you revisit it, that you can refactor it or fix any bugs if needed. If you are a solo game dev, odds are no one else is going to be looking at or working on the code with you. So do what works best for you. Software development is a field where you are always learning new things, and it is such a big field that you are never going to learn everything. The most important skill you can develop is learning how to learn. Once you do that, code as if you are sketching out a drawing on a piece of paper and keep refining it and adding new detail. If you find you want to add a feature to your game but do not know how to do it, then look it up online. Odds are you're not the first person to try to do something, especially if you are pulling inspiration from another game. Build games. Use tools to help you build games. Develop a deep understanding of how code works why code works, and understand when you need to be coding technically with your right brain or coding artistically with your left brain. Again, no matter your programming skill level, I hope this talk helps you overcome some imposter syndrome, which is never going away by the way, so you're going to have to learn how to live with it and push through it. I'm experiencing it right now as I'm recording this podcast. But mindset is very important when it comes to coding. It's easy to get intimidated by not knowing how to do something and get stuck in tutorial hell. But you're going to learn so much more by working out projects and bringing games to life. If you want to see these programming philosophies in action, 
then hopefully you can see them reflected in my devlog series on my YouTube channel, or even in a self-contained video I have as well for the development of a one-week-long game jam I did from beginning to end, which is also available for free on itch.io. Remember, my name is Develop R Hunt on all platforms, so feel free to check me out and even reach out to me if you'd like to talk more about coding in general. I would love to help out and continue to become more a part of the game dev community. Thank you again for having me on the podcast. This is my first time in this art form, so hopefully you found some value in it regardless of your game dev skill level. Again, feel free to reach out to me on any social media as I'm always looking to get more involved with the community. Thank you all, and I'll see you next time. And there you have it, a really useful talk about coding for beginners and intermediate people alike. I specifically really liked what Ryan mentioned about avoiding tutorial hell and not skipping from tool to tool or code language to code language, uh, trying to find the perfect thing, and rather using the tools that are going to help you make games and just sticking with that. I think that's a very uh, good observation and not one that I've put together and compared to uh, the same as like going from engine to engine, but now that he said it, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, if you'd like to follow along with what Ryan is doing, you can find him everywhere with the name Develop R Hunt. Um, on Twitter, it's at Develop R Hunt, and yeah, it's the same on YouTube and Twitch as well. I'll leave a link to all the social medias in the show description. So yeah, go check out what uh, Develop Our Hunt is up to and ask him questions or let him know how you liked the episode. Maybe he said something that really helped you. I'm sure he would be happy to hear it. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. And I'm active in our community Discord pretty much every single day. You can find links to those in the show description. With that, I think I'm going to end the episode. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide.